Hello, and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process, and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, a game design enthusiast, role-playing game editor, indie hustler slash promoter, and interview podcaster. You can find me on Twitter at IamFofos, and on itch.io at blue-golem-games.itch.io. This week, I interview industry veteran Steve D of Tinstar Games about his game Relics, a Game of Angels. It's a game about angels, miracles, dogma, memory and religion, and is beautifully crafted, written and presented. Steve talks so eruditely about his design process, and I think this is an interview that you're going to love. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. Today, we're interviewing Steve D of Tinstar Games. Hi, Steve. Hello. Uh, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games? Uh, well, I've been um, working in role-playing games since a long time ago. I think about 20 years. 2006, I think I got my first freelance job with Warhammer, second edition with the Green Ronin. And I've worked on every edition of Warhammer since, and I've done stuff for Vampire the Requiem and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and basically a whole bunch of uh, freelancing work for most of my career. But I've also wrote a few little um, of my own smaller games. There Is No Spoon, which became um, popular. It was a Matrix role-playing game. And since about five, six years ago, I've been putting my games up on my website at tinstargames.com. Yes, starting to sell them through drive-thru. Well, a year ago, we funded my first big RPG, Relics, and that's just about to be sent out to people um, in the next few days, which is very exciting. That is exciting. And uh, you've come on Yes Indeed today to talk about Relics, a game of angels. Um, Do you want to give us a little bit of an elevator pitch about what your game is about and where it came from? Yeah, so Relics is, uh, is a game of angels. Players take the role of angels who have fallen to earth, not been cast out of heaven because they're sinful, but come to earth for various reasons. Basically, God created the universe and um, then realized that uh, that, uh, the humans that lived on it were going to possibly cause great destruction whenever the angels tried to guide them towards uh, better solutions. So God forbade angels to interfere. And some of the other angels decided that they wanted to take control of the world since they created it. So they became the demons and the angels um, went, went to war against them, but they were worried about destruction lest they destroy the world themselves. So they fell to earth to try and fight each other through covert means. Uh, so a cold war has been going on for thousands and thousands of years between angels and demons. But just recently, God has slammed the door to, to creation, taking all the angels and demons in heaven away to fight the final war. And all the fallen angels and demons are now trapped on earth and trying to decide if there's still a war and how they feel about continuing to fight when perhaps everything has changed. It uses references of things like um, Wings of Desire and Dogma and the Prophecy films, as well as you know, comics like Lucifer, and we drew on as many possible angelic references as we could. Yeah, they're scattered throughout the book. Um, I, I think I recognise about half of them, but the dogma references I picked up, uh, particularly that you have yes. gendered your god as a woman, which I which I really like. Probably my favourite scene in uh, Dogma is when God turns out to be Alanis Morissette. I, you know, what what could be better than that? Very nineties reference. Yeah, it is. It is a lovely scene, and certainly Dogma was one of the one of the key things that I had in mind. I've always been a huge fan of Angels, and I, I was really I really enjoyed that film. 
And it, of course, references things like Wings of Desire directly. And I've always been a huge nut for angelic things. So Relics was uh, sort of a no-brainer in that regard. It was something I really wanted to do on a very personal level. There is clearly a lot of reference in this book to religious, uh, I, I guess the word is dogma, um, about uh, angels and about demons. And um, it, it brings in a lot of stuff, but it also kind of tries to tie all that together in terms of cross-faith belief as well. And that yeah. all faith has some kind of central tenet, which a lot, a lot of which is about the supernatural and a lot of which is about understanding things which are effectively not understandable yes it's very neatly done it's very well tied together and thematically it's very strong throughout the book that's some of the media touchstones that you've got but what, what about the um the gaming touchstones a lot of people have compared it to the white wolf games and it certainly owes a lot to those to the the world of darkness it was actually when i was working on vampire the requiem and i i was doing a huge amount of research into that game for few small projects that I worked on yeah and I was like if I if I'd wrote my own setting I wouldn't have to do all this research I just know it in my head so that's <laughs> yeah. when I started planning out my my version basically yeah uh, in nomine is of course a big influence oh of course I'd forgotten about that game we were really happy to get Dan Smith to draw a lot of the art for relics because um, his art in nomine was again a huge influence there's a couple of artworks of his that I actually had up my, on my walls for years. Yeah. Um, I, I barely played the game, but the art and the ideas in it were just so strong. So there's there's those kind of influences. Obviously, we 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 use a system that comes came from a game called Alas Vegas by James Rawls. It's not one I've heard of. It came about five years ago, and then it was delayed for about four years before coming out. So a lot of people kind of just forgot about it and moved on because it seemed like it was never coming. Yeah, it remains a, a nice, an unusual game, a game about flashbacks, a game about heavy subject matter. It's a game that is also extremely driven by an actual uh, scenario or rather an adventure. It, it, it is designed to be played effectively just once uh, because there are secrets about the setting that come out. It's about a four-session um, scenario slash plot, which is about players waking up in the desert outside Vegas with no memory of how they got there in shallow graves and trying to figure out what the hell's going on and um, whether they are in fact in the real Vegas or not, mm-hmm. while also discovering their backstory. So James Wallace is someone who I've always admired. And, um, he was instrumental in, in sort of the really early days of indie RPGs. So he worked on uh, Baron Munchausen. Of course, yeah. That's what he's most famous for, but also there was a game called Pantheon, which is a really early storytelling game published through, I think his company was called New Style. And he also published things like, um, so back in the 90s, we had a game called Violence, which was a sort of parody of the hyper-violent RPGs and movies of the 90s. Oh, gosh, somebody was talking to me about violence only the other day. Also, Power Kill by John Tynes, I think it was, and Puppet Land and all these sort of things. So James was sort of really big on getting some of these really indie RPGs published in the late 90s. Yeah. When the, the field was really kicking off, um, which was really exciting. Early indie, pre-Forge, a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, before the Forge. To go back to it, that was a Las Vegas. Yeah. That was one of the, the major touchstones here. Um, we directly take the system from that, and that was yeah. sort of just a happy accident. Yeah, so a Las Vegas has a system about flashbacks because your characters are all have cinematic amnesia. Mm-hmm. And originally, I, was, I actually went through a lot of different systems for Relics. And then I was like, just not finding anything interesting enough. And then I suddenly had this flash of how the way that the flashbacks in that work would be perfect for the way I wanted angels to work in this game. And that and it just became this really perfect marriage. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like it's a, it's a 
fantastic way of doing things. Yeah. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about how, how memory works in this uh, setting and mechanics and, and so on? Because it's all tied together very neatly in this game, which is kind of perfect ludonarrative elision. That's a nice quote. I put that one on the back. I'm something I really believe in, though, is is really having strong connections between mechanics and, and setting. Yeah. I'm not kind of person of saying, oh, the, the system can just sit in the background. I want the set the system to come forward and really inform everything that's going on. Yeah. So there's a couple of goals that I wanted to do. And one thing I wanted to explore was the fact that angels are incredibly long-lived beings who've been on Earth for a long time and interacted with history for, for a very long time. And so I didn't want to use like a traditional skill list because you get this sense of like where you could know anything. The way it works in Las Vegas is that because you've kind of lost your memory, you, you encounter effectively triggers where you can suddenly go, oh, I suddenly remember, you know, from last night or whatever it is, because it's a little bit like the hangover kind of thing where you're just flashing back. But in this, instead of just being last night when we were all drunk, it's flashing back to your entire existence, perhaps hundreds, thousands of years on Earth. And this is actually quite a common trope if you look around. Um, there was a show called Miracle Workers recently with um, Daniel Radcliffe. Yes. And that was about angels who were once human and they would flash back to their life. Things like um, Forever Night, for those of you who are who remember the 90s, that was a TV show about a vampire cop and it would always flash back to his past and the Highlander movies and the Highlander TV series. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lovely kind of trope. We go, remember that time when we were in revolutionary Paris? Well, the recent Good Omens TV series, of course, there's a whole episode where they track the angel and demon's history across the history of, of humanity. Yeah. And that just adds a great deal to an angelic story, to being able to go, yeah. we were there through all this immense history. So the way it works in the game is that when you need a skill for a situation, you ask others at the table to provide a memory of a time when they saw you using that skill. So if you need to hotwire a car, Perhaps um, they remember the time back in the 1930s when you were in the Monte Carlo relay uh, rally around around Europe or something and, and whatever the thing may be. And there you were, you know, ripping open the electronics so that you could make the car work. Or maybe you stole the car because, you know, you needed to win the rally for whatever reason. Yeah. And the thing is, the memories can build up. So later on, someone else can flash back to that same scene and we'll find out more and more about it. Yeah. And other characters, of course, could have been there because the angels have all met many, many times. Again, like in Good Omens, their paths have crossed back and forth across history. And, and then you have that skill going forward, and we know a little bit more about your past. That way, you build up this extensive backstory. The, the more you play the game forward through time, the more you learn about who you were in the past. And that can be really yeah. fascinating because you reveal things about your character that you didn't know and are outside yeah. your control as well. Which is kind of in contrast to maybe how traditional rpgs run this which is to say that hmm. you already have a backstory predefined at the start of play and the only thing that you're building on is new experiences with other players yeah but here you're doing both of those things at the same time which in my mind is much more interesting a kind of trope of things in your past informing your skills now yeah it's kind of a big mood in role-playing games at the moment especially in indie like you, you look at games like one last job and federico Sones nibiru where yeah Every time you need to have a skill or every time you do something new that you haven't done before, you have a flashback scene to describe how you do that now. Yeah. What I think is very interesting in the way that you do it is that you explicitly ask other players to do your flashback for you. Yeah. And you then use that to define what skill you want or the other way around. And that's extremely interesting. 
<laughs> it's very cool how you bring all the other players into how memories are created. I think one of the, one of the things that some people might find difficult about that, it forces you to lose a certain amount of your agency in terms of how you define your own character. Do you want to go into a little bit about why you made that decision? I mean, you've hit one of the reasons is that it involves the other players a great deal. Yeah. One of the really easiest things to happen at a role-playing table is for everyone to be sort of playing their own game. Yes. Our character sheets sit in front of us and we forget who other people are. And I really wanted things to to be really collaborative. Yeah. But also, yeah, it was what I like about it is that it, it actually taps into the sort of unreliable relator sort of sense of a story where you don't always know everything about yourself. And that's something I actually find really interesting to explore in in role-playing games and in stories as well. I think sometimes we're very attached to the idea that we know exactly who we are and what what we're gonna do in certain situations. One of the very first games I developed was a game based on Firefly, the TV series. And I had a sort of a morality mechanic in that where pretty much everything was about deciding about which way you were going to approach a situation but it had to be decided by a die roll. So you might be tempted to you know, take the money um, on a job that's gonna hurt some innocent people, but you get the money and you're not sure which way you're gonna turn and you actually have to roll the dice. And a lot of people were like, that doesn't feel right to me. I should be making that choice. And as I pointed out, in most role-playing games, you, 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 know, you don't get to choose if you hit someone with a sword or not. You can try as hard as you want, but you may still miss. Yeah. And I think that's actually sometimes a more realistic way to portray morality, is that sometimes we're not the people we think we are. And we try, but we miss. Yeah. And we, we make bad calls. And when we started testing it, it really came into its own because we had a guy who, in his head, he was an honest cop. And then we started doing some flashbacks and we realized he wasn't always an honest cop. That just fit really well with a lot of the a lot of the kinds of stories that are very popular at the moment, particularly like with the current sort of Netflix TV shows where you sort of you see a character and you're following them and then slowly through flashbacks, you realize you you're not seeing everything about that character and there's much more to them. And that comes back to that thing I was saying about how mechanics tie into to story. You can only get that feeling, you know, that feeling you get as an audience where you go, oh, I never realized that that character did that terrible thing or had that incredible backstory. What I like about this is it gives you the chance as the player to have that experience about your own character. Yeah. To go, oh, wait, I'm learning something about this person that I'm playing, which is, yeah, bringing in that experience of the audience to the player themselves, which I really like, again, is something that's interesting. We say play to find out what happens, but I think a lot of the time people want to have all the control about what they are doing. I'd like to know what happens to me when I lose some of that control and I'm not sure what my character is going to do. And I have to react to that both as an author, but also as an audience member. And go, Oh God, what has my character done now? Yeah. Also, you provide a lot of tools in this game for randomization. And again, you're sort of saying there that you're taking away the agency of the character to say that the character is not theirs. It's everybody's. It's a factor of the story. It's a factor of the table. It's a factor of how you were feeling at that moment. Yeah. I think what you do is you use those tools to, to highlight that actually your characters are narrative tools as opposed to individuals in their own right. That's important for me when I approach role-playing games is I I want them to be storytelling tools. I'm less interested in a perfect simulation. Yeah. And I I want my character to be not something that I'm so 
attached to as a playing piece that I'm not going to sacrifice it or damage it for dramatic potential. Absolutely. I think that's really important as well for people to to realise that. There are a lot of indie games particularly which are driving in that direction. Yeah. The more towards the kind of story building rather than, as you said, simulationism. Yeah. Some of the mechanics that you have in this game, actually all of the mechanics, are based on tarot. Yes. Did you have a particular reason for making that choice? Well, again, the tarot is, is a key feature in a Las Vegas. Right. It's a good start. Because that game is uh, set in Vegas and is about gambling and about the way gambling dominates life in Vegas, it was a really good fit for that. And it's also a game about fate and control. So porting in the Las Vegas system, which thankfully is um, open source, meant we were bringing in the tarot. But as soon as I made that choice, again, it was just a perfect fit. Because if you, as soon as you look at the tarot, there is a huge amount of angelic iconography through it. And it taps into also, again, the idea of sort of destiny and fate, which is a real part of angelic stories. It is. Uh, so, yeah, one thing that I've always, was one of the basics things that I put into Relics really early is the idea of the tetramorph, which are the four faces of the angels. And they appear on three different cards in the tarot. So it's just a very, very good, easy match. Yeah. And again, you have that kind of synchronicity between four faces, the angels, and there are four suits as well. And those, there's all yep. sorts, basically, that kind of ties all of this theological theory into the way that the, the tarot works, probably kind of explicitly in terms of how that original tarot reading was formalized in the 19th century and what a lot of the iconography around the Rider Waite tarot decks looks like as well. Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. I think you've made your own tarot deck for this game, which... Um, I'm pretty excited to see based on all the artwork in the book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how the main tests work, particularly, I think, the complex tests, because that's kind of fascinating. Again, most of this comes straight from Las Vegas. I'm just not saying that everyone knows it, just that that's where the, the, the mechanics came from. But the, mm-hmm. a simple test, you are just drawing a card from the deck and trying to get a seven or higher uh, to get a partial yeah. success or a port card to succeed. And for more complex texts, you can actually play a game of of blackjack with the dealer, as we call him, who is the GM player. So you get a hand, the the NPCs that you're against uh, get a hand, and you're trying to to beat their total uh, without busting. And um, the thing about that is you can see the target that you're trying to hit, which creates a bit more anxiety uh, and a bit more tension. Yeah. And it also encourages uh, these big explosive actions because busting feels different to not quite hitting yeah so you have that situation you're sitting there on a 16 you know that the dealer has a 17 then you go well i have to hit because otherwise i'm not going to succeed and that feels very much like that situation of i can't quite i have to go all out to try and stop this and i unleash something and if i go bust then i i obviously cause problems as opposed to getting what i want yeah which is a really kind of intense um moment which I, i like yeah so beyond like that mechanical choice of do I draw another card, do I not draw another card, which is part of the, the gambling yeah. aspect of it, there are kind of character aspects that you can bring in as well that will give you yeah. an edge in these situations. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, there are basically four types of angelic archetypes that we call your aspect, and they're tracked to the four suits. So in those cases, those cards uh, work better for you if your suit comes up and you're doing the action that's associated with your suit. So that also encourages play. So for example, we have the uh, the Nesha, uh, the angels that are all about movement and flight. So if they are moving and they draw the suit of um, coins or pentacles, then they get an automatic success. So 
that you know encourages them them to do those things so that they're more and they're more they're about you know something like forty percent more chance more likely to succeed when they're doing those kinds of actions. And the uh, the Isha are the diplomatic talking teaching angels. So if they are speaking, then the suit of cups is more successful for them. And we also have every player is associated, every uh, angel is associated with a, what we call a signifier, which is a key card in the major arcana. Yeah. And if that card comes up, then one of your um, new miracles manifests. So again, uh, the angels have uh, what we call relics. The title of the game refers to these objects that contain the angelic power of angels. And it's been shut off to them until God left creation. And now, just like they are sort of flashing back to their past, they're slowly remembering the incredible powers they have. So whenever the cards come up, they get to go, oh, I've got a miracle. A new miracle suddenly occurs in the scene. And they get to describe what happens and how it saves the day. And then they have a new power on their sheet. Yeah. So it works like the flashback system, but it's a bit less predictable. Playing blackjack with their tarot deck. That's very cool. I'm very into that. What I particularly like is the way that the the major arcana work in the fugue system, in that if you're doing one of these complex actions and you you draw two major arcana, then that ends up being 21, then that you're pretty much going to win the round. Yep. Especially if you get the world and the fool. I think that's that's the most powerful card yes. in the game. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I really like the way that that's been set up. It's really cool. Yeah, again, that was James just being clever and spotting that the, the numbers in the major arcana are from 0 to 21. Yeah. So it just worked really well as a blackjack analog. No, it's great. It's great. I really like it. I think one of the other things that you kind of mentioned at the beginning, and I think is really interesting in terms of game design theory, is about um, diegesis and exegesis in RPGs. Yep. Do you want to maybe very briefly talk a little bit about <laughs> what, what that is and how that relates to your game design process? So diegesis is the story that is being told to us, whereas exegesis is the story that emerges sort of in chronological order. So when you have a game with a flashback, the diegesis is often very different in terms of what of the actual exegesis because they're happening at different time speeds you have if if you're interested in that kind of thing like watch memento where the diegesis is running backwards and the exegesis is of course running forwards yeah um, but by the film the film is literally unwinding in front of you um, but as it does we learn why we learn each scene from before which is great yeah a lot of people have this idea of like well, it comes back to that sort of simulation aspect is that I should know that my character knows these things. Yeah. And so the, the, the diegesis is we're having like, when your character needs to know this, we're going to have a flashback. But of course, in reality, your character has always known this. They haven't just got to the bit where they're going to hotwire a car and then suddenly learned how to hotwire a car. Yeah. They've always known it, but we're going to establish it now on screen. Yeah. For some people, they really want to have a very sense of, of a kind of a strongly simulated universe. And so it doesn't make sense to them that they wouldn't have that written on their sheet because there might have been a scene, a few, there might have been a game last week where they need to hotwire a car and they couldn't. And they didn't have a flashback because it wasn't that important or something. Yeah. And so now they've got this logic break. But in the logic of story um, and the way that we, we tell stories, that makes actually perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we, we understand how that works. And we watch TV shows where that happens all the time. Yeah. And you, you can strain people on that sometimes. Yeah. If we suddenly heard that, like, warp speed wasn't faster than light or something in one episode of Star Trek, we'd be like, hang on, no, that's not right. 
but we understand that just because something hasn't happened on screen doesn't mean it didn't exist beforehand in that character's existence. Yeah. And I think as, as someone who, who is a writer and a lover of, of the way that fiction sort of creates lies and tells lies to us, I'm much more interested in games that deal with those kind of concepts. And I've always been a huge fan of, of those kind of ideas. And, and, and I, I always want to GM in those kind of areas. Games that are uh, that I didn't mention in terms of influence, but there's a game called Primetime Adventures, which is really strong on that. Oh, yeah. And Smallville is one that gets forgotten a lot. It's based on the TV show about Superman, but it's so much more than that. It, it's very much a game that really understands how to model how those kind of sort of pseudo soap opera shows work. Yeah. The whole system is about how the conflict occurs and escalates yeah and then often doesn't resolve effectively it just gets worse and worse i think i'm right in saying that's a cortex system game yes it's a cortex game yeah i, I think cortex does that really well where you have that kind of it's uh it's emulating the feel of a, an episodic television program rather than say yeah. a cinematic film and it's it's a very interesting system i um ooh, it's been a long time since i read it <laughs> but um yeah I, I, I like cortex and how that and how that ties they've just released something they kickstarted i think it was last year cortex prime which is sort of a collection of all the rules um of the last couple of five years or so sort of bundled into one book which is quite excellent oh right yeah i might i might check that out it doesn't quite it doesn't capture how how clever smallville was on its own but it's got it's got the mechanics from there in there so you can have a look I think one of the things that you've done to kind of highlight that in this game is that you say uh, if you learn a new skill in a scene, then you give that a really important narrative weight by just saying, yeah, okay, if you've invested the effort, then fine, you, you can just succeed at that action. That's cool. Yeah. And I think that that kind of, as you said, there's a sort of dissonance between I, I tried to do that last week and failed, but now I've actually invested some kind of effort into that. I succeed. Well, I think that's it's really nice. Uh, it works in a, It works in a cool way. Yeah, kudos. Basically, I just think this game is very cool. Like, it's not very often that I sit down and read a, a rule book the whole way through, uh, especially not one that's 300 pages long. But um, I'm very glad I did because there's a lot to unpack in this book and it's uh, it's very concise in what you're trying to say. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, you, you hope it's good. And so far, though, the, all, the, all the reviews we've had have been really positive, which is great. It's definitely really good. It's also very, very beautifully illustrated and exceptionally well laid out and i understand that you have worked alongside somebody rather than employing them directly yes. do you want to go into a little bit about that i also try to make card games and one thing i've always struggled with is that a lot of people who are game designers whether role playing or tabletop design tend to have a fair chunk at least of visual skills yeah and i am just terrible um i make all my games in word basically and they look like it, and that is unfortunate, but I just do not have any graphical skills. Uh-huh. Yeah, me too. Um, for those who do, you can, you can get an immense leg up by just the fact that your games look incredible. Yeah. Um, because we, they are they are instruction guides, and they are full of information. Um, so basically, I've struggled, though. I also am someone who is, I'm on a disability pension, and I have very, very little money. I have been extremely poor in my life, and it's taken me a long time to get out of you know homeless-level poor almost. And so I can't just go, oh, can I pay you $500, $1,000 to lay this out or to do some, some images for me? So what I've been looking for is someone who is interested to sort of go, I will work with you and we will share the wealth and we will share whatever profits we make. But I understand that that is a very difficult thing to say to someone. I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they feel it is very exploitative. 
And so it's been hard to look for someone like that to just keep saying, hey, who wants to work with me? I can't pay you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I sort of finally found someone who was interested in that. And um, Matt Roberts, um, who is a designer in Sydney, who was just like, you know, I'm always looking for things that I can work on and I never have enough ideas and saw what I was doing and had this sense that it was worth pitching a ride with me. And it's just been incredible because it means I can have these ideas for a game and then Matt will just make it beautiful. Yeah. Relics was, though, his first role-playing book. So a lot of it he was learning as he went, and yet it still looks incredible. So I'm I'm just so so happy with the, the work he did on it. Yeah. And having this personal relationship, you know, he also designed the logo. Mm-hmm. And that was just again wonderful to have someone to be able to go like, you tell me what you think relics should look like. Yeah. And and let's celebrate that as well, which is just um, so much of it was a solo effort, but then there was been a couple of people who've come on and I've been able to go show me your vision, and that just it takes it takes a little bit of the load off, but it also makes for something really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and like it's really good to be able to find designers and artists who you can really trust to pick up mm. the spirit of your uh, of your writing, and then to be able to yeah. take that and run with it and. And yeah, you've, you've got what is a very cohesive, slickly designed book out of it. So yeah, that's really lucky. I think in terms of taking people on in terms of a promise for the future, it's happening a lot in the indie scene. And I totally get that it is a difficult thing to ask people to do. Yeah, there's a lot of promise in it. And it's great, but it, it's kind of scary to be running something like that and saying to somebody, you may not get any money at all out of this. So it's very encouraging that people are willing to offer their labor to do something that they love. Yeah. There is a tendency, though, because because so many artists have been ripped off, it can be very difficult to, to reach out and ask people for this because yeah. you can be like I've actually been I've been like removed from groups from asking the from asking the question because it was a sense that I didn't respect the work. Mm-hmm. But the problem is I also know a lot of really poor game designers who are sitting there going, I wish I could pay you and they look at me and say, I wish I could pay you. Yeah. So, you know, I would rather that we both work for free and make something than we both sit there and going, I wish we could respect each other enough to pay each other. You know, you Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't want to be so locked in that idea that like obviously everyone deserves to be paid, but sometimes there just isn't the money and no. you know we are artists we're not always going to be able to have something that gets um huge financial success and pays and yeah that's right i mean the scene is not a, a wash with cash especially at the moment yeah and it's not like you can go to a bank and say oh hey could you lend me a thousand dollars so i can pay somebody to make a board game for me that's not how mm. that's not how banks work and even kickstarter yeah. is a kind of limited um is limited in that yes. scope because you have kickstarters are hard you know you have to do a lot of hustle yourself and you're not even guaranteed to get anything out of it so it also requires a fair amount of, requires a amount of a fair amount of financial investment as well to yeah absolutely yeah yeah and uh, like there are other platforms out there you know you can use indiegogo or patreon or things like that to kind of get a drip feed of money but it's still none of it is as powerful as saying to somebody well how about we just try royalty shares it's an investment of hope (laughs) which i think is really important in in a scene that is a lot about people just going out there and making things that they love yes yeah and and look if hundreds of thousands of fans buy relics then i can do so much more i mean that's the thing is uh i'm now at the point where it's i'm I'm at the point where i now have a lot don't have a huge amount of money to spend on on advertising and that's it makes it harder to just direct people to picking up the game it does Um, i'm slowly going to be able to get it out to distribution but there are people who've come to me going oh i want to write this adventure and stuff i'm like i can't pay you and until we 
start to actually sell yeah. more copies. Yeah. Um, so please, please buy copies. I know everyone's you know worried about their jobs with the COVID, but I, I basically you know, just the Kickstarter didn't quite make enough, so I just I have no money in the bank. And as I say, I'm not someone who has you know a lot of cash. So mm-hmm. yeah. to do more, we need sales. That's the end of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the the sort of the flip side of all this is that a lot of our audience is sort of demanding that everyone be paid in advance and be paid very well, but our prices are still fairly static and fairly low. And, and yeah. I think it's um, not, no, and nobody wants their games to suddenly cost five times as much either. No, but it is it comes back to that same, I think, and we're all just sitting around being poor. <laughs> this is the other side of it, isn't it? That, you know, yeah. everybody expects every indie game to be produced to the same level of stand of quality as the AAA games, you know, as, as Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. And that at the same time, to cost $15 or less. Yeah. Know that most highly rated indie games now, luckily, do not cost that little money. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, it means that people don't get paid enough and also that games don't sell enough. And really, I just wish people could move away from demanding full-color 300-page rulebooks for games that or just don't require it. I mean, like, what game requires concept art on every other page? None. Yeah. The market can be quite competitive. I mean, it was really important that I had... I was able to scrounge some money and some of it was loaned to me to get concept art for the Kickstarter to get the people to put the money in. So yeah, there's, there's no easy answer. No, there is no easy answer, but um, I feel like working collectively and working collaboratively is, is a way better solution on the whole yes. than, than the existing model, which is, which is just resulting in poverty effectively and it's mm. resulting in direct harm being done to producers and people just deciding they don't want to make games anymore yeah yeah i think i think if we can think more like like an artist commune and a, and a co-op we, we will hopefully see better solutions coming out of this steve would you like to tell us where we can find you on the internet so my website is tinstargames.com that's tin like the metal a tin star like uh, like the sheriffs used to wear in the old west there is all the information about relics there and how to buy it through drive through and through itch at the moment drive through takes less for cost so drive through is preferred but itch is your preferred model go that way uh, also on there you'll find all my little silly micro games and tiny rpgs story games uh, again you can get on itch i've got a whole bunch of games that i've designed like if you like the way that relics is weird and different and as you say brings the mechanics right into the fore then i've got some really interesting games there uh, that you might like to have a look at and some card games on there as well um, i'm tin star games everywhere so that's the facebook name that's the itch page name uh and i'm at tin star games on twitter fantastic and i also have a I also have a podcast about making games called lancing with myself uh-huh. which i will send you a link I would love to see that. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. No worries. Um, we're always like game design podcasts here on Yes Indeed. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And I'll make sure that all of that goes in the episode description for our listeners to find. And once again, please go out and buy Relics because it is fantastic and you are supporting very good creators when you do this. So all that's left for me to say is um, thank you very much for coming on Yes Indeed and goodbye, Steve. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Steve for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. Next time, I'll be interviewing Georgie Batts, a new voice in the indie scene who writes lyric games on Itch.io and short games for the San Gennaro Short Games Digest. A are a good friend and a great person, 
and I can't wait for you to hear our interview. The latest Sanjanara Corp Short Games Digest, Volume 5, is out now. You can pick up eight very neat games for only $10, including Culinary Kobolds, a game about kobold chefs in a cooking competition, and my latest offering, Highway 61, a game about death, mourning and buses. It's well worth the look, just for the cover art. If you're not all bundled out from the Itch.io Mega Bundle, then you can find the latest Colludium Bundle on Itch.io right now, which focuses on queer and trans voices in indie gaming. You can get up to 12 incredible games from amazing indie voices in three tiers, starting from just $10. It ends in five weeks, so check it out as soon as possible. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamFofos. That's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and filmmusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.